Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's pray and then we will jump in. Our Father, we thank you for this evening, for those who are able to come. Pray that you would give me clarity of thought and that we would be able to think through some of these things, help us in our own minds to parse these things out and deepen our interest, our commitment to finding the information we need to know, the, the things that you've put in your word for us to discover. Help us to uh, be energized, again, just be driven uh, to tap into those truths and then to apply them to ourselves, but always be uh, charitable toward others. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. The first slide, of course, tells you what we're going to talk about tonight. I, I decided after, I can't say much deliberation, it just sort of hit me today. Um, at the end, if we have time, I, I have a couple slides that I will share a few, I don't know what to call them, uh, a few thoughts uh, with you, uh, sort of by way of summary, but also to to let you know a little bit of the things that I feel uh, I'm able to tell you that I'm fairly convinced of, you know, pretty well convinced, and then uh, you know some other things I'm still uh, waffling on as far as some aspects of end times, because you know a number of people have asked, you know, will you, you know, what do I think? So I'll give you a few of those, and I'll try to to walk you through why I put the things on the list that I did. Uh, and you know, it'll, it'll just be a few points. It's not going to be a full-blown, uh, here's what, what Mike thinks. But I, I think it might be a little helpful, and we can catch a few things, too, that we only really touched on in passing. But I think there are some core ideas that, that are pretty evident in Scripture. And if we can sort of zero in on those, you can sort of build uh, on them as well. We'll get to that at the end. And hopefully we'll have... Uh, a little more time for Q&A if, if there are any questions. So, I want to sort of approach the rapture timing issue from the perspective of what is the hope of each system. So again, if, if, you, if you're someone here who doesn't believe uh, in a rapture, I don't want you to feel left out uh, of the discussion. So I, I wanted to have this slide so that you can sort of compare and contrast where everybody's at. Uh, because in the first week, I thought uh, a good way to frame the question, someone asked, well, you know, what, you know, what is someone who doesn't, you know, believe in a rapture or believe in the kingdom or whatever, what is their hope? You know, what, what are they looking forward to? So I want to start here and give you that brief overview, and then we'll zero in on 
the systems that split the, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, into two events, like we talked about uh, on the second week. Are you a splitter or a joiner? And then last week we hit the, the 70th week of Daniel, which ties into that. And, and both of those things will factor into, very naturally, what we talk about tonight. So the first position here, pre-trib, pre-mill, I'm guessing that most uh, of you are probably that. It's a very common uh, tradition within evangelicalism. That view says, well, here I am, and we're somewhere in the here and now, and somewhere out there there's going to be a rapture. And then after the rapture, there will be this seven-year period that we'll call a tribulation. After that is the second coming, and then there is a 1,000-year millennial kingdom on earth. And then after that, we have the eternal state, new heaven and new earth, whatever it is you want to call it, uh, by whatever ever phrase. And so the hope of this system is a rapture that is preceded by nothing in the way of signs. Remember, last week we talked a little bit about imminence. It's easy to sort of define imminence one way if you have this seven-year period that you think is the last week of a 70-week cycle. Okay, there's a certain timing that goes with that. And if you see clear borders here, there are things that you associate with the prior event and the second event. And really the signs that Jesus talks about, this system puts in here preceding the second coming, but nothing preceding the rapture. This is the only system that defines imminence as nothing needs to occur before this event in the prophetic calendar. All the other systems would say that some of the signs that the pre-trib, pre-mill puts in here, if we remove this event, then very naturally there are things to look for on the way to you know, the blessed hope, which would be, in other systems, a rapture event in here, or no rapture at all, and a second coming. But in this system, here is what is usually thought of as the blessed hope, being removed from the tribulation, you know, taken with the Lord, and then the events here play out on earth, and the Lord returns seven years later. Now, the mid-trib position has the seven-year block and right in the middle is when they say the rapture happens. So in this system again you will you will read those who take this position as describing certain things that you could possibly detect in terms of signs and things that will, will happen to let you know that the tribulation has begun and once you see the beginning of the tribulation then you know it's three and a half years from that point. So you know when the rapture is going to happen. And then obviously, because you can do the math, okay, three and a half and three and a half, you know when the second coming is coming, right after the seventh year expires. So this system would not define imminence as there's nothing to look for. Blink of an eye. Okay, this, is the, this here is the only system that does that. Then, of course, we have the kingdom and the new heaven and new earth, eternal state. Now, this one you may not have heard of. The most familiar positions of rapture positions are pre-trib, mid-trib, and then post-trib. I'd say in the last, oh, maybe 20, 25 years, maybe a little longer, 
uh, Marv Rosenthal, who was very active in ministry to Jews and Jewish Christians, came up with a different view called the pre-wrath rapture. It's sort of like the mid-trib, but there are a few differences. We have a tribulation period just after the midpoint. After the midpoint. Sometime after the midpoint. We don't really know. That second three and a half years. In that second three and a half years, then the rapture can happen at any time, any moment. So we have to have we have to pass the midpoint. The rapture occurs after the three and a half years expires, and then we have a second coming, millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state. Now, the, this is called pre-wrath because it does not equate the full seven years with the great tribulation. The great tribulation in this system is a smaller unit of time that begins and is really triggered by events in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, namely the abomination of desolation. So once that happens, once you pass the midpoint, then the Lord can come back at any time, and He's coming back again with the purpose of taking the Christians off the earth because there's going to be a terrible, terrible time of extreme persecution within the second three and a half years, but not equated to the second three and a half, because then he'd be a mid-tribber. He is a pre-wrath theorist, hence the name. Post-trib, again, has the seven-year tribulation. At the very end of it, we have the rapture, comes down in the air, takes believers up, and comes right back down again in the second coming. So that, hap- that transpires right at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Again, all these systems assume that the tribulation period is the 70th week. We talked about that assumption last week. Again, there's no verse for it, but it, it's, it's an argument built on other considerations. So right at the end, we have the second coming, then again the kingdom, and the eternal state. All of these positions are splitters. They have two events, rapture, second coming. The difference between them is the timing and the spacing between the two events. They will largely make the same assumptions. They will take certain passages slightly different ways to get this variance as far as the timing and the spacing. This view down here uh, referred to as the historic premillennial position, does not believe in a rapture. The blessed hope for this position is the second coming, a single event. Again, here it's the rapture. It, the, the, the hope is that I'll be out of here when all this bad stuff's happening. Now, you know, when you get to the post-trib, it's like, well, you know, we went through it anyway. You know, So you can't really call the rapture the blessed hope, but the hope really... You know, focuses on the end, like the historic pre-mill position. The, the differences are, you still have two events here, even though they're virtually back-to-back. You only have one here. And there's really no interest, or no need is probably a better way to say it. There's no need to have a precise seven-year period preceding the second coming. Uh, it's a lot more variable or flexible. But you have the second coming, kingdom, and new heaven and new earth. The amillennialist, same hope as the historic pre-mill, the second coming. 
and then after that is the new heaven and new earth. We don't have a 1,000 year kingdom set up and then the eternal state. It's all the same thing. So this is Amil. Now, these two are somewhat close, but what the fundamental division is, is that since the historic pre-mill position has this little element, this millennial kingdom, they're going to insist that when Jesus returns, he actually governs on earth. Again, for the specified thousand years. Hence, it's, it's, a, it's a millennial position. It's one of the millennial positions. In the Amil uh, system, they view the millennial language as referring to the here and now, the church, the age we're in now, is the kingdom, and that's all there is. Whereas the historic pre-mill says, well, yeah, you know, we're, in some sense, the kingdom is here, but there's going to be a future time after Jesus comes back that he will actually set up a system of government on earth and rule on the earth. And that's sort of the fundamental distinction, even though there's, there's a lot of overlap here. Now, all rapture positions presume certain things. They need to split second coming passages into two events. That was week two. They all characteristically have, again, this literal millennial kingdom idea. Historic pre-mill does too, without a rapture. But all the rapture positions are going to have that. A prophetic tribulation period. What I mean by that is, again, some... They're going to take some statements in the Old Testament. Daniel 9 is probably the most obvious. But they're going to take language in the Old Testament as specifying a specific period on earth as a time of great tribulation that could essentially be mapped out. And, and the 70th week of Daniel is really important for that because of the whole timetable it, it is presumed to lay out. The other thing they assume is a mostly... Now, there's some variance here, and this is part of the reason why you get a pre, a mid, a pre-wrath, or a post-trib rapture. The progression of events in the book of Revelation, if you've read the book of Revelation, I imagine most of you have probably a, a number of times, there are seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. There's a difference of opinion as to whether they're all in linear sequence, yeah, you got the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowl. You know, you have, you have just the whole sequence. Or if some of them overlap with each other, and then the question becomes which ones and how many. Okay? But all of those positions have the assumption that there is indeed a linear progression of events in the book of Revelation, that you're supposed to read Revelation as though it is unfolding linear time, but in the future. Now, you can catch that I'm saying it that way because a lot of people don't think Revelation is supposed to be read in a linear fashion. Most of those, I don't want to say all, but I'm almost willing to say anyone who takes that sort of position um, you can pretty much rule a rapture out. They're going to be amill or historic pre-mill uh, because they do something different with the book of Revelation. I'll show you in, in a moment. Now, most rapture positions presume the following. So this isn't, we're not unanimous here, but most of them will make 
an equation of the 70th week with the tribulation period. The exception is the pre-wrath view. For them, the term tribulation or great tribulation is not seven years. It's a portion within the 70th week of Daniel. So that there's not a one-to-one -one equation there. Also, most rapture positions do acknowledge that there will be signs to look for, either before the rapture, depending on how far into the 70th week you put the rapture, there might be things to look for, or the second coming. Again, the exception is the pre-trib, pre-mill. That's the only view that's going to define imminence as there is just nothing that needs to happen before the rapture could happen. And that view is, is the exception. Timing factors. Uh, here we sort of get into what we'll take a brief look at uh, tonight. The belief that the tribulation period judgment is only for the Jews is an important factor in the timing question. You know, in other words, how is any of it for Christians? Or is none of it for Christians? And this is a period of judgment, okay? And so, does the church go through any of it or part of it? And which part? How long? Okay. So, this whole issue is, is, is quite significant as far as what you think, what's the relationship between these two events, the rapture and the second coming? This is again tied to the 70th week, again the presumed question, connection, because for some this period is seven years and the church is entirely divorced from it. For others it's part and the church either is still divorced from it or goes through part of it. Again, it just, it just depends. Now, here, here's why the question is raised. If you link the 70th week to the tribulation, Think about what we looked at last week, what Daniel 9 says in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon who? Somebody fill in the blank for me. Determined upon thy people and thy city. Okay, and he, speaking of Daniel, it has to be for the Jews and for Jerusalem. So the assumption is that as the angel describes the 70th week in verse 20, 27 is when we have the abomination and all this terrible destruction happens that if all the other weeks were for Israel and for Jerusalem then it stands to reason that the 70th week which again is presumed to be this tribulation time it stands to reason that that week also is predictive of events that will happen specifically to national Israel and its people. That's a very logical thing to presume. Because that's true, and because we can't equate national, key term, national Israel and the church, because those are two different things, the assumption is that the church is not going to endure the suffering of the tribulation. It's somehow out of the picture. There are rapture positions that don't buy that entirely. 
Again, if you move the rapture into the tribulation, then you either have to redefine the tribulation, like the pre-wrath position does, as a little part of the second half, or you have to say, you know, I think the church is going to suffer too. You've got to make one of those two choices. But the question is raised because of Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks determined upon thy people and thy city. And then you extrapolate from that. So this is a big deal. And, and a, an area where there's going to be disagreement. Again, the issue of the sequence and overlap of the judgments in the book of Revelation is going to be a factor. Presence or absence of the church in Revelation 4 through 18. Now here's what I mean by this. In Revelation 1 through 3, that is the message that Jesus gives to John about the various churches in Asia Minor. So a lot of the discussion is about churches. One of the arguments, I'll show you in a second, is that after chapter 4, you don't have the word church show up in the book of Revelation. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, After these things I saw, and then stuff's going on in heaven. And so the assumption is that there's a transition in time and events where the church was part of the picture here, and then once we hit chapter 4, when John starts getting information about the future, the church is not in the picture anymore. So this issue, is the church present or absent? There's, other views are going to say it is in chapters 4 through 18, and I'll show you why. This question is sort of dovetails with this one, that it would make sense to not have the church in these chapters when all the bad stuff's happening. That would make sense because the tribulation period is for the Jews, not the church. So these, these ideas go hand in hand. I'm just trying to distill them here. The last issue we'll touch on tonight is how to interpret Matthew 24. Um, Matthew 24 is in the New Testament, so every rapture position has to say something about it. But Matthew 24, it's Jesus' longest sermon, uh, other than the Olivet Discourse, or the, excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount. It's his longest sermon, might be a little bit longer than that, uh, definitely his longest sermon on prophecy. Uh, there, there's actually a lot said in that chapter that allows you to create a chronology of events. There's a lot of ambiguities in it too. But because you're looking at a basic chronology, there's a disagreement over how that chapter influences the whole issue of the timing of, again, the presumably separate events of the rapture and the second coming. You know, people who don't believe in a rapture are going to look at Matthew 24 in an entirely different way. They're going to say it's all about the second coming. It's all about the second coming. It's all about the second coming. They're going to filter it through that decision that we talked about in week two. If you're splitting the events, you've got to do something with the passage. You've got to, and here's the problem, you've got to find some explanation for the passage that matches, that you're, at least you're comfortable with the match, matches what's said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
And we talked about those two weeks ago, too. So here are your, your major factors. Let's take a, a brief look at them. Is the church removed before the wrath of God? Now, I put wrath so that I sort of account for the pre-wrathers here. But is the church removed from the prophetic picture before things get bad? Again, before this great tribulation, before the wrath of God. Embracing or rejecting that idea influences how you look at other passages. Key text. Here's one of the, the key sort of proof texts that you, everybody has to do something with. You turn to God from idols, First Thessalonians, this is Paul, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Now he's already talking to Christians. He's already talking to the church. So it's not referring to the first coming. It's obviously referring to the second coming because it's Paul. And he's living in light of, you know, with the hope of the second coming or whatever prophetic events that are out there. So you're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from, the Greek preposition is ek, can mean from or out of. That, that, that's the rub. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, let, there, there's two things to think about here. If I translate it, delivers us from the wrath to come, that sounds like I'm delivered before I get tangled up in it, before I encounter it. I'm delivered from the wrath to come. If I translate this out of, oh, the mid-tribbers like that one. <laughs> because then you're already in it, and you're delivered out of it. So which one is it? Uh, uh, just a, a rule of thumb for Bible interpretation. Do not base any doctrine on a preposition. Okay? <laughs> you should never base any position on a preposition, because they are no Notoriously elastic in meaning and translation. The short answer is, who knows? Could be either. Both are completely possible. But that's only the first thing to think about. The second thing to think about is the wrath to come. Can anyone suggest more than one way to take that phrase? Now, I've cast it as referring to the tribulation, a, a prophetic period out there that's really bad. What else might it mean? Yes? Well, it could be the final judgment. You bet. Haven't we been, been delivered from the wrath to come? Well, if you're a Christian, you have. In other words, it may not have anything to do with the tribulation period at all. Zero. It might just refer to hell. Who knows? You can go either way. Another verse. Same epistle. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this one sounds more like hell. Okay, but there are those who say God hasn't destined us, the church, to go through the tribulation. And salvation is not ultimate here 
again, to those who make this argument. It's not the ultimate salvation. It's salvation from this hell on earth known as the Great Tribulation. So here, it's just it's a semantic issue. Again, which one is it? Which, which wrath is it? Who knows? The logical question is, if, if you're going to take... You almost got to take them both the same way to be consistent. Because <laughs> you got the same letter, same writer, First Thessalonians. If you think this one refers to hell, then what's keeping you from thinking the other one does? Well, I need that one to get out of the tribulation. Well, at least you're honest. <laughs> you know, and, and you might be right. You might be right. You know, setting aside the whole idea of, of I'm going to articulate a theology because I, of what I want to happen. Okay, that, you know, is a problem. But every, again, everybody does that somewhere. Setting that aside, you know, you have to either say, you know, I think I can have one and the other. I think it's six and one half is another. I'm just going to make it, in this passage it means this, in that passage it means that. Or I'm going to be consistent and have the same approach, the same interpretation for both. And then that'll take you somewhere else. Again, in, in your in your view. Go ahead. Would you to be consistent enough to be parallel internal to the passage? And if you took that to be uh, salvation from tribulation or uh, okay. Keep going. If you took that to be deliverance from tribulation, then the salvation too would be um, Reduced in its significance to salvation. It, in you're right. You're right. If 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 you're going to take them the same way, then then all the elements surrounding them, you, yeah, you would need to be consistent. At least it, it feels like you would need to be consistent. To me, it feels that way. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, but but Mike didn't write the rules, you know, for cosmic Bible interpretation either. Okay, it, you know. Um, I, I'm, I'm very fond, especially when I get into it on the internet with critics, you know, who say they give you either-or fallacies all the time till it just makes your eyes bleed. Okay, it, you know, I'm not, I'm going to reject what you say, and then the, the truth must be what I say. Well, like, why do I only get two choices? Okay, I don't want to do that either. You know, they're just because it, to me, it feels like, boy, you know, I, I, just, I think I need to be consistent here. That doesn't mean that it's required. I, I don't, I can't tell you, I can't point to you any, to any passage that says, thou shalt take this word consistently everywhere. You know, I, I don't have anything like that. But for me, I, I, I like to feel like I'm being consistent across the board. I like to probe things that way. Is the church present or absent from Revelation 4 through 18? Argument. The word church occurs 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3, and once in chapter 22. It does not appear even once in chapters 4 through 18, which describe the tribulation period. Now again, this is taken from Ryrie. Ryrie is a pre-trib, pre-mill. That's his position. So he makes this observation. And on the basis of this observation, not, not only this, but this is, a, this is significant to Ryrie. On the basis of this absence, the absence of this word, ekklesia in Greek, he says, look, that has to mean something. 
And for Ryrie, it means that the church is out of the picture in these chapters. And since what happens in these chapters is all this bad tribulation stuff, his conclusion, based on that and some other things, is that the church is removed, it's raptured off planet prior to the tribulation. Now, alternatives will say this. Or anyway, this, this is, uh, again, a, a text Ryrie will refer to. After this, I look, look, chapter 4, and come up here, and then the reference to a trumpet. So he said, the rapture happens right here in chapter 4, and that's why we don't have the church there. Now, the other view is this. While the, the word church doesn't show up, the occurrence of the word saints, okay, like, a, like in Paul's epistles, this does occur in chapters 4 through 18. Here are refer the references. So the other view says, look, okay, ecclesia doesn't show up, but hagioi, saints, the word that the New Testament uses for New Testament church believers, that does show up. So to this view, that suggests that the church is on earth. Then again, Ryrie points this out. He's being honest. He's not going to hide anything. Nope. Let me go back here. So which is it? Is the church present or absent? I don't know. Again, you have to make a decision. Which argument do you think is more compelling? Um, you, you can't really have both. <laughs> so again, you have to make a decision. If you have the church in, you know, in these chapters, then that opens the door to other possible views of a rapture. But if you'll notice, the distribution... Here we have chapter 13, 16, and 18. So it, it, it kind of goes toward the end. So even positions that don't have a pre-trib rapture are prone, especially when you get toward the end. Again, if you think Revelation is a linear sequence, and right around chapter 18, you're getting close now to the end of the tribulation period. If you want a rapture before this, if this argument really matters, then you, you might have to fudge on what you think saints means at, at a, any given point. Again, to make the system work, you know, whatever system it is you prefer. And you might have good arguments for that. You know, they might be arbitrary. It, it just depends. Is the book of Revelation linear? In other words, when I open the book of Revelation, Am I correct in assuming that the writer is giving me a flow of time that proceeds in a straight line? Now, most people are certainly used to reading the book that way because well, that's kind of how we read books. Okay, it just one thing happens and then the next thing happens and the next thing happens and you're just used to reading things in linear fashion. So proceeding from that, again, if you want to make an argument about the absence of the church, you really do need some sort of linear flow. So you can say, these chapters right here, church isn't there. It's before and it's after. When you start using words like before and after, you are thinking in a linear fashion. So this is important. 
chapters 6 through 16 are where you get these judgments. And here's how the linear view looks at things. The seals, seal judgments start, and then there's seven of those. And when the seventh one is up, then the first trumpet, then you have a succession. When that one's over, then you have the first bowl, and the seventh bowl is you know, the end, okay? the, the final day of the Lord. So you have 21 judgments in a row in linear sequence. This is how your standard pre-millennial position takes it. And certainly all of your rapture positions will take it in linear fashion. But is that right? Well, not everybody thinks so. In fact, a lot of people don't think so. I don't know who would be in the majority here. It's probably pretty close. Uh, most, the most widely known non-chronological view is something called the recapitulation view. It's basically a repetition of cycles. So the view is that all those judgments, seals, trumpets, bulls, actually convey the same set of events, the same set of ideas, in different ways, and they cycle through each other. They're repetitive. There are three, instead of three sets of seven linear judgments, there's three sets of seven. Each of them is a cycle that tells the same story each time, but in slightly different ways. If you take that view, you do not have a linear time sequence in Revelation. It, it undermines it. Here's what it looks like. I couldn't really find a good graphic of this. This is from Beale's commentary. When you, you can always get the slides and look at it more closely, but when the seals start in chapter 6, you have certain elements. You've got the horse, you know, some, something about conquest here, and the sword taking peace from the earth, and another horse. And you have these horses and all this bad stuff going on, famine, blah, blah, blah. So you have four catastrophes. You've got to invent a really broad term for this four catastrophes, and then you have the woes intensify, approaching the end, so you have more catastrophes here. Then there's some sort of interlude about the 144,000 and the two witnesses and whatever that is. And then you have a final end. So here's one cycling through catastrophe level one, catastrophe level two, interlude, and the final battle, the final conflict. And then the trumpets will give you four catastrophes, and then you have these woes, then an interlude, then the end. You know, you get the idea. So some people are, are not disturbed by the fact that the three sets of bull judgments do not use the same terms a lot. Remember the splitting or joining session we did two weeks ago? Some, some people really need the exact same vocabulary used for every end times event to feel that it's one event. As soon as you have differences, oh, it must be two, I'm going to split them. And I use the illustration of the harmony, the, the, the situation where the four Gospels don't agree. Do we harmonize or do we keep apart? And then we talked about, do I harmonize the second coming passages or do I divide them into two events? It's the same issue here. When the, when the vocabulary is different for these catastrophes, are, are they completely different events, or are they the same events, just using different words and different symbols and different images? Some people are 
think, yeah, sure, why not? You know, they're all sort of the same general kind of category. I'm fine with seeing cycles repeated. The Bible does that lots of places, like Book of Judges. You know, you have this sort of endless cycle of, you know, judgment and oppression, and God raises up a judge, and they, you know, go off the deep end again. And so there's an analogy to the idea, but the idea is taken to the book of Revelation, and that influences the way you look at the whole book. Is that right? I don't know. Rapture elements. Now this one was a slide we looked at two weeks ago. Everybody who espouses a rapture is going to take 1 Thessalonians 4 as the rapture. It's sort of like the, the go-to passage. So let's look at it. you got a shout, an angel, trumpet, and something going on in the clouds. So we have these elements right here. Okay, fix those in your mind once again. So we got a certain set of rapture elements. We've got Daniel 9, and the 70th week is described this way. He, this, this bad guy prince, which most people assume is the Antichrist, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, again, one week is seven years, half of the week, the first three and a half, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So in the middle of this 70th week, something that Jesus and other people call the abomination of desolation happens. So let's fix in our minds. We've got certain elements for a rapture. Right here. Shout, angel, trumpet, clouds, you know, somewhere up in the sky. And we've got a seven-year tribulation with the abomination happening in the middle. Got it? Matthew 24. Why don't you turn to Matthew 24? Because again, everybody who, who has a rapture and a second coming has to do something with this passage. Matthew 24. Give you a chance to get there. You want to start at verse 15. Again, the whole chapter is essentially Jesus answering the question, hey, you know, what's going to happen at the time of the end? And you know, what will be the signs of your coming? And so Jesus launches into this long discussion. What do you see in verse 15? Anybody? Okay, keep going. Go ahead, you can read it. Stop there. It, it sounds like it sounds like it's bad. Okay, so it sounds like the tribulation. Keep going.
that time if someone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. But there will appear false messiahs and false prophets performing great miracles, amazing things, so as to fool even the chosen, if possible. There, I have told you in advance. So if people say to you, listen, he's out in the desert, don't go. Or look, he's hidden away in a secret room, don't believe it. When the Son of Man does come, it will be like lightning that flashes out of the east and fills the sky from the western horizon. Wherever there's a dead body, that's where you find the workers. But immediately following the trouble of those times... Uh, immediately following the trouble of those times... Keep going. The sun will grow dark. The moon will stop shining. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. He will send out his angels with a great shofar. Ah. So we have the clouds coming on the clouds. We've got the shofar, which is the trumpet. And we have an angel. Keep going. And they will gather together his chosen people from the four winds. A gathering? That sounds like a rapture, doesn't it? Isn't that what a rapture is? It's not a dispersing, it's a gathering. Keep going. From one end of heaven to another. Now the tree people as branches begin to sprout and leaves appear, you know the summer is approaching. In the same way, when you see all these things, you are to know that the time is near, right at the door. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, and my word will never pass away. But when that day and hour will come, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, not the Son, only the Father. For the Son of Man's coming will be just as it was in the days of Noah. Back then, people went on eating and drinking, taking wives and becoming wives, right until the day that Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came. Okay. Go back to the reference to the, I don't know what terminology you used, right around verse 29. Is that the abomination reference? Or something like that. Go ahead and read that. But immediately following the trouble of those times. Okay. Yeah, what, is, what, what version do you have, by the way? Okay. Anybody else have, a, have the word abomination in there so we can get a feel for how it's translated in a couple versions? I can open it up, but I don't want to take the time. Somebody read Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Okay, back up a little bit. 15, okay, yeah. Read that then. 17. Yeah. 15 has Okay. All right. Yeah, that one. Okay. Okay, so we have a reference to the abomination. Oh, that was faster than I thought it would be. In verse 15, so when you see the abomination spoken of, 
and then all this bad stuff happens. When does the abomination happen according to the 70th week? In the middle, right? So this must be the midpoint of the tribulation if we're going to take the 70th week of Daniel. As Catch this. If you take the 70th week as a synonym for the tribulation, then you have a seven-year tribulation, and this must be the middle point. And what that means is you don't get the language about the gathering, the angel, the trumpet. You don't get any of the stuff you find in 1 Thessalonians 4 until after the midpoint. So that creates an issue. If you're a pre-trib, pre-miller, what do you do with that? Well, what you do with it is you have to... You have, back here I have choices right here. You've got some choices to make. Either you have to have those set of signs in the angel, the gathering, the trumpet, all that stuff. You either have to argue that both of those signs refer to both the rapture and the second coming. You have to argue that the imagery is the same. But as soon as you do that, the other side, your opponent is going to say, well, why don't you just have one? In other words, if you're going to use the same images for two events, what's wrong with just saying that those two events are actually the same event? And the answer is nothing's wrong with that. It's a decision you have to make. You again either split them, you're firmly convinced that a split is necessary, and therefore you have to look at the imagery and apply it to both and say Matthew 24 is talking about the second coming. It's not talking about a rapture. The context is the second coming. And it just so happens that those images in 1 Thessalonians 4 are also relevant there. Again, I just did it. I just made that argument for you. And then I would defend that argument. Whereas the other side is going to say, I'll give it up. Okay, it just, it's just... It's, it's the same thing. Just one event. You know, so the, the, the struggle is really going to be other passages where you're either persuaded you've got to have two events or you still have one. But no matter what your view is, and there are plenty of pre-trib, pre-millers out there who will have a view of Matthew 24. Same thing for your pre-rathers, your, pre, your mid-tribbers, your post, post-tribbers, easy, because that, that's basically two, event, two events that are really one anyway. But all of the other rapture positions that are not post-trib have a way of dealing with Matthew 24 so that their system is intact. Everybody does that. I just want you to be alerted to the fact that, again, we have this marriage between the 70th week and the tribulation, like they're synonymous terms. If you do that, you're going to have trouble here. Okay? If you don't do that, if you do something different, be creative. Okay? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Do something different with the 70th week and the tribulation, like, like the pre-rathers do. They don't equate them, and they still have a rapture. It's just at a different time. Uh, but be creative. You have to have some relationship between the two 
you know, the, the Daniel issue, and then the Matthew 24 issue. Uh, every position is going to have to create some sort of coherent uh, alignment of those two passages. And the different ways you do that will produce different systems, different timings. Now, what time is it? What is it? Five to eight. Oh, okay, I do have five minutes. All right. Since, since I've been asked a lot, you know, what do you think? I, I, I threw in two slides at the end here. Uh, I'm not going to tell you my positions because, you know, I'm still thinking about things. I will, so, sort of by way of summary, tell you the things that I think you can sort of really latch on to that have a high degree of certainty. Because one of the questions last week was, you know, do we sort of have a hermeneutic of despair? Is there anything, you know, we can know about end times for sure? Yeah, there's some things. There are some things that are, you know, have more clarity than others. And I want to I share, for me, what a few of those are. So in this column, I have strong suspicions. <laughs> we'll just call them that. I don't want to call them absolute certainties, but strong positions. I would say this much stuff over here, this much at least is true. And over here, there are points of uncertainty, things that I'm not so sure about. First one, I would say that the kingdom of God is here in some way, definitely. Colossians 1.13, I don't know how much clearer Paul could make this. He, Jesus, has transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son. He's using the past tense. He's speaking to Christians right then. How much clearer can it be? So the kingdom can't be totally future. In some way, it is here. But the question is, is that all it is? In other words, if I was an amillennialist, I would say, I, I stop right here. Church is a kingdom, that's it. End of discussion. That's all there is. It's all there's going to be. Move on to the next topic. I'm not so sure about that. In fact, I, you know, I, I'm, I really, really doubt that this is all there is to the kingdom. I do think we will see an earthly rule. But beyond that, you know, terminology, you know, I, I would quibble about. Next one. I think we have to affirm that the church, and this is consistent with this one, the church does inherit the Abrahamic covenant. Why do I say that? Because Paul does. And I don't want to disagree with Paul. Okay, Paul says, point blank, in these four verses, that if you're Christ's, you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. How much clearer can he be? Okay. We do inherit the covenant. Now, if you remember the first week, this is a big deal because the covenant is for concluding that Israel is still going to get the land and the kingdom of God, Jesus is going to return to Israel, temple is going to be rebuilt, and there will be a literal kingship of Christ in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So amillennialists will say, nope, none of that's going to happen because the church inherits the, the covenant. Well, I, I think it does, but again, my question is, does that really rule out 
a future for national Israel. Ultimately, it depends how you read this passage right here. Because this is Paul's wish and hope for the salvation of Israel. Does his hope for the salvation of Israel include or exclude the land? He's not clear. So I think it very well could. I just don't know. That's why it's in the uncertain column. This is real clear. That isn't. I think we also have to agree that the church is the household of David. Go to Acts 15, 16 and 17. Set the stage for you. This is the, the so-called Jerusalem Council where they have to meet about, you know, do we, do we have any rules that apply to the Gentiles? You know, Paul's come back here and told us about all these Gentiles being saved, and wow, isn't that an amazing thing? I never would have seen that coming because, you know, we're, we're Israel, we're Jews, it was our Messiah, and all this kingdom stuff, and wow, the Gentiles are being brought in, and we believe that, that this is really of God, and, but now, like, you know, we got this mixed church thing, and some of the stuff the Gentiles do really bothers Jews and vice versa. So what do we do? So they meet here. And James, in these two verses, quotes a certain passage. Okay, let, let's hear it in Acts 15 first. Somebody want to read those two verses. I will rebuild, what is the word tabernacle there, or tent? I'll rebuild the tent of David. Okay. Salvation of mankind. Now somebody go to Amos. I think it's Amos 9, 10 through 12, I believe is the passage. This is the passage that James is quoting. It'll read a little differently than James cites it. Somebody want to read that when they get it? Mm -hmm. All the sinners of my people will die with the sword. Say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its branches, reaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as they will. They may possess the remnant of Eden, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Sounds real similar except the Edom part. The remnant of Edom in Amos, and in Acts we get the remnant of mankind or something like that. Problem is, is Edom and Adam, mankind, are spelled exactly the same way in Hebrew. But James takes that reference. Again, mankind, sort of, if we want to think of Edom, Edom was attached to Israel peripherally. It was sort of an outsider, but not an outsider. They were the descendants of Esau, so they were outside the chosen line, but they were still related. And so James is taking that idea and sifting that through Paul's testimony of the salvation of the Gentile, and lots of other Old Testament passages about salvation of the Gentile, like Isaiah 66. And he's like, man, we didn't see this coming, but there it is. But the part I want you to focus on is this tent of David. If you were Amos, and you were living in Amos' time, 
Okay, you've seen the kingdom split. You got part of the kingdom is history, and then you got the little kingdom of Judah struggling along. The dynasty's wicked. You got a bunch of bad kings, and then Amos comes along and says, "You know, God says He's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David." What do you think that is? Do you think it means the church? James did. <laughs> I mean, that's what he does with it. He views that passage as proof that God was bringing in the Gentile. And if that's the case, and it is, because that's what he says, then the church is the household of David, in some sense. Now, does that rule out a visible kingdom ruled by the Davidic Messiah when he returns? I don't think so. Because he's going to return. Doesn't rule out a return, that's for sure, because Paul talked about the return plenty of times too. And so did Luke. So did everybody. But again, the amillennialist will take this and say, ah, don't need a kingdom. I'm just not sure. Because this, you know, it doesn't really say that. That's that that's something you're that's a conclusion you're drawing from it. And it doesn't really say that. It says this much. But it doesn't really say what you're extrapolating. The church, I think, again, transparently, the church is the temple of God. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19. One of these references is singular, the other is plural. Paul says, don't you know that you, either singular or plural, are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? How clear could he be? Why would he say that? Because the presence of God, the glory cloud of the Old Testament, lives in each believer, and each believer collectively forms the church, the body of Christ. Body of Christ is, what, who is Christ? What was he? He was the enfleshment, the incarnation of what? Deity. That's what he is. Very consistent. But if we affirm with Paul this, because that's what he says, does that mean there's no need to rebuild the temple? Personally, I don't really see any need to have a temple rebuilt. Doesn't mean it won't be, and I don't think this rules it out. I think you can have your standard premillennial system without a temple. I don't think it's essential, but a lot of people want it, so it's okay. I don't think this rules out that. But this I'm more sure of than I am that. There will be discernible signs prior to the second coming. Astronomical, I say that because of Matthew 24, signs in the sky and all that kind of stuff. And historical stuff happening on the earth. Like the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. So, regardless of what position you take, even if you're pre-trib, pre-mill, I found that the pre-trib, pre-mill people are the ones that are most tuned in to reading the newspaper and figuring out where we're at. And they're the ones that are, are saying, nothing needs to happen. And, but they're the ones that, that just, man, they're just right there. Every you know, news event, where does that fit into the prophetic timeline? Why are you worried about it if nothing needs to happen? I mean, I don't get it. Uh, even, even that system, even though in theory... 
There's nothing that needs to happen. You can tell that there is a sense when Jesus in Matthew 24 starts talking about all this stuff going on. Even though they'll, they'll put the signs into the tribulation period close to the second coming. Because that's, you know, that's kind of where they're at. If you do that, why would you do that as a pre-tribber? Because if you can pin that down, then you can do the math and work backwards. And then you'll know when the rapture is. Okay, it's Harold Camping, okay, you know, the, the whole spiel. This is what everybody's doing, even though they'll, they'll believe in imminence. Boy, they sure want to know. And so we're looking for signs that will appear later. I won't be here. Church won't be here. It'll be off planet. We'll be with the Lord. But man, if I can pin something down over here, then I just get out my calculator and work back. And oh, I know when it's going to happen. That, that's really cheating. <laughs> But there is truth in the sense that, yeah, there are passages that say that. But again, if you're pre-trib, none of this is before the rapture. All of it's before the second coming somehow in the seven-year period. If you're not a pre-tribber, then, you know, this takes on a different meaning to you. You know, you're, you're plotting out, you're looking for different things for different reasons, you know, different parts of the tribulation. This obviously... I don't know if I want to call it a... I think I would call it a sort of a kind of a lesson in futility. Um, maybe not a complete waste of time. It, it is interesting to some extent. But you're guessing everywhere. Plus you have Jesus saying, look, the day of the hour, no man knows. Now I'll grant you if you guess, there, there, I don't want to get into it, but the, the, the big one is, what is the sign of the Son of Man? We know, astronomically speaking, that there were signs that accompanied and map with extraordinary precision, like down to a 90-minute window, the first coming, the birth of Christ. Okay. The question is, is that what the sign of the Son of Man means? In other words, is the same set of circumstances that were at the first coming in the sky, is that going to repeat, and is that what mean, the sign of the Son of Man means? Who knows? Nothing ever says that. But if you guessed right, you could map this to within six months or a few months. You could map it all out. But you're guessing like at ten other different places too. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Look, you're not going to know. Here are some things to look for so that you're ready, but you're not going to know. So don't worry about it. I mean, just be, be satisfied with what I'm giving you. A few last things. These are things I would, I would say just don't have a prayer of being right. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to have the negative perspective here. I don't see how you can get a partial rapture. Okay, rapture's tough enough. You, know, you got enough questions there. But to say that the rapture is only for the holiest people in the church, you know, that one I'm real skeptical of. I think you can rule out Gog and Magog as Russia. This is one of the things that I just love to hate. Okay. Hebrew is not Russian. Okay. Rosh does not mean Russia. Tobolsk does not mean, you know, whatever... Togarma, okay. 
Semitic is not Indo-European. Okay, there's just no relationship at all. I think we can rule that one out. This one is a little more interesting. Go to Revelation 20. I would say we need to rule out Gog and Magog, whatever that is, as an event separate from either the second coming or the day of the Lord. The only other place in the Bible where Gog and or Magog are mentioned is Revelation 20. And it occurs after the thousand years. Nevertheless, you will read all sorts of books that have Gog and Magog happening somewhere in the tribulation with amazing precision, somehow completely ignoring Revelation 20, which is over here. So you literally, and I have seen people do this, you literally have to say things like, well, I just think that's another Gog and Magog. Really? Like, there's one in the Old Testament, the only other time it's referred to is here, and that's just like another one completely different than the other? Why? The, the answer is I need it for my system to work. Okay, I think we can rule that one out. And lastly, I think there's a last one on here. People will take sides on this, that the Antichrist must be a Jew, and then you'll have other people who are flipped over and say he must be a Gentile. He could be either. There's actually, uh, there's actually a long line of tradition uh, that argues either way. If you think the Daniel 11 Antiochus, you have to be sort of into prophecy to follow this, but I'm going to throw it out here. If you think that, that Antiochus IV, what he did in committing the abomination in the middle of the second century BCE, if you think that that was sort of a blueprint for the abomination that you imagine yet future, that's great, because there's a lot to suggest that, but he was a Gentile. Very clearly. On the other side, there is a long line of tradition. Um, let me put it this way. There's a Jewish line of tradition that looked at the tribe of Dan very suspiciously, very negatively. And that was picked up on in the early church by Irenaeus and a few others, a guy named Hippolytus, who believed that certain passages indicated a great enemy will rise from Dan and be a rival to Judah, because Dan and Judah are often diametrically opposed in certain genealogies, and there are other weird things going on with Dan. So there was, there was a tradition shared by Jews and Christians that the Antichrist would come from either the tribe or the region of Dan. I'll give you one sort of oddity. In the book of Revelation with 144,000, where do we get the number? 12,000 from how many tribes? 12. How many tribes are there in Israel? 12. Look at the list. Dan is not there. But it's still 12 tribes. Dan is omitted from the list. Dan's omitted in different places in the Bible for, for inexplicable reasons. And so the rabbis in the early, early church noticed these anomalies and also the location of Dan in the far north there's a, there's a whole Old Testament tradition called the enemy from the north it's a motif that repeats it's also and it's in Ezekiel 38 and 39 by the way 
this northern enemy that comes down that, that, that attacks Jerusalem and all this kind of stuff. Um, Dan is part of that because of where Dan moves. Dan's tribe originally was in the south. I know I'm getting into these boring passages in the Old Testament, like tribal allotments. Man, that's exciting reading there. But if you look at it, some of the, some of the best stuff is in these odd passages. If you look at it, the tribe of Dan originally was in the south, right above Judah, like near Jerusalem. They move. They leave. They leave their tribal allotment, and they migrate north into a region called Bashan, which was viewed in the Bible and outside the Bible as the gates of hell. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. But there are, again, some Jewish thinkers and some early Christian you know, thinkers that notice stuff like that and go, oh, there's something up with Dan. Just doesn't look good. So you actually have a long line of, of tradition that will go either way on this issue. So I don't think, I have it in this list because you can't really be dogmatic. There's just no way to say it must be this or that. But that's it. Any questions? We're actually a little over, which I did not anticipate, but any questions? Yes. So even safety within uh, uh, within uh, on the earth. Uh, yeah. And it kind of goes along like this uh, blessed hope. For them, I think mm -hmm. the blessed hope is a place of safety. And uh, let's see. Uh, so it, it appears that there's going to be a place of deliverance. Mm -hmm. And this would be their blessed hope. Uh, the book of Revelation speaks about this dragon going out and uh, encountering some resistance and not being able to penetrate to a certain area, and then frustration gives out, gives up, and then goes out upon the whole earth and uh, spewing out its wrath upon the, the entire population. Of does, that, does that have a name, or is just, it, you're, it's just associated with, that, with those groups? Okay. Interesting. So it's, it's basically the, uh, the evangelical church of God. What's, what's the history of that? Is that... Is that an offshoot of Armstrong's old worldwide? Because I know I know they had sort of an evangelical derivative of that. Okay. Anybody else? So how, how does it does it apply it to either the rapture or the second coming in the note? Why would they mourn, I guess, if it was the tribes of Israel? You know, think with me here. I don't I don't know how it could be a rapture event because if the rapture is the removal of the church, then you have to invent some 
you know, or discern or create some sort of argument why that would make them mourn. And if it's toward the end of the tribulation, they've had lots of reasons to mourn before that. So why single that out? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'd have, I'd have to see how it's plugged in to to know what I think of it. But those are just those are two or three things I'd want to know right off the bat. Uh, sure, it doesn't say anything. It doesn't apply it in some way there. Or... I don't see anything here. This just kind of stood out with me. Yeah. Uh, it's basically contrasting the erroneous translation of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It, you'd also have to know what what the word there is for tribe because. You know, I, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head how much precision there is between tribe and nation. In other words, is is a word that could be used for an Israelite tribe is that ever used of a non-Israelite nation? Again, I, I don't have that in my head, but if it was, that might be a reason why other translators would actually choose world there. And they would have to take the 12. Well, there's, there is no 12. It just says all, right? All the tribes or all the nations. That would have to be part of the rationale for choosing the translation world or nations instead of tribe. But that's a really good example because, I mean, you're, if that's the case, you're getting into word usage. And you can tell by virtue of, of the, the translation choice there, that really takes you in different directions. And I'm not saying that the translator is being a traitor here or anything like that. I mean, you just have to make those choices because you can't, you can't put both in your translation. You got to choose one. So, yeah, I'd be interested in in doing a word study on that. See if there's any any usage that's non non-Israelite for that. Anybody else? Sure, go ahead. Do you, do you have your Logos open? Because uh, I'd like to know if that's a transliteration so far. And I'll, uh, I'll tell you why. <clears throat> if that really is the shofar, in other words, if that's not just an interpretive translation, if you can establish that's a shofar, since that's connected with the sign of the Son of Man, that takes on importance because if you take Revelation 12 as a series of astronomical signs and you I mean you, you literally take that as a celest as a series of celestial events you can pinpoint the birth of Christ again to within a 90 minute window and that event coincides with the blowing of the shofar okay 
it's, it's Rosh Hashanah as well. In other words, everything in the Jewish calendar and everything in the, in the, in the, the Greco-Roman astro-theological calendar aligns at that moment. So if that is the shofar, that would suggest, it certainly doesn't prove, it would, it would be one argument that you would use to suggest that what's going on in Revelation 12 is the sign of the Son of Man. And so the, the question is, can you really, is that a legitimate assumption to make? Because if it is, then it suggests that the same concatenation of events is associated with the second coming as was as they were with the first. You see all the extrapolations I just made there. Okay, but the fact that you can do that, I actually have that on my computer. I have that mapped out. I can tell you when it is. But is there any point to it? You know, I just made two or three, not leaps of logic, but leaps of faith. You know, I guessed at that. I mean, who knows? So this is one of the reasons why I say, you know, I know, I know prophecy is interesting, but there are people who would hear what I just said and literally spend the next 25 years of their life trying, trying to prove that, trying to nail that down. Why? I mean, at, at the end of the day, what you have is one big, really cool guess. <laughs> That's all you got. It's what it'll be 25 years from now. It'll be a guess. It'll be what it is today. It's a guess. So I would be interested if that's a... I don't want to hold you guys up. I'll, I'll look when we shut down. I want to know if that's a translation or a transliteration of Shofar. Anybody else? Any other question? Seeing none, thank you for coming. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.